How many present here this morning have read the New Testament through in its entirety? Just a quick show of hands there. Many of you, probably most of you. Well, if you have, then you probably notice the many times the phrase one another appears in the New Testament. But for those who have not read through the New Testament or maybe didn't notice, let me quickly give you a partial list of the occurrences that I ran across in the book Quality Friendship by Gary Inrig. Here is a partial list. Wash one another's feet, John 13, 14. Love one another, John 13, 34, and many other times. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12, 10. Give preference to one another in honor, Romans 12, 10. Be of the same mind toward one another, Romans 12, 16 and 15, 5. Stop judging one another, Romans 14, 13. Pursue the building up of one another, Romans 14, 19. Accept one another, Romans 15, 7. Admonish one another, Romans 15, 14. Greet one another, Romans 16, 16. Wait for one another, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. Care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Serve one another through love, Galatians 5, 13. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Show forbearance to one another, Ephesians 4, 2. Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4, 32. Forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. Be subject to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Regard one another as more important, Philippians 2.3. Do not lie to one another, Colossians 3.9. Teach one another, Colossians 3.16. Comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Be at peace with one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Pursue good to one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Consider one another, Hebrews 10.24. Do not speak against one another, James 4.11. Do not complain against one another, James 5.9. Confess your sins to one another, James 5.16. Pray for one another, James 5, 16. Be hospitable to one another, 1 Peter 4, 9. And clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, 1 Peter 5, 5. And that's just a partial list. In fact, the phrase one another is used 58 times in the New Testament, not counting the uses in the Gospels. That's just in the Epistles. Now, whenever God says something once... It's important. We should give the utmost attention to the subject. But when he repeats something 60-some times, then it can't be emphasized enough how important that concept is. So the one another's are obviously important to our Lord. Ministering to one another is obviously important to our Lord. And yet, do you realize that the church of Jesus Christ has virtually ignored the subject of believers ministering to one another? Instead of seeing every member of the body of Christ having a responsibility to other members in the body of Christ, we think that just a few people have that privilege or that responsibility. We've even gone so far as to call these few people the ministers. The ministers. A terrible title. But it's not just our titles that propagate the concept. Our structure 
does too. In our gatherings together, we leave very little time for any body life to take place. There is very little opportunity for mutual ministry. One or a few people do all the ministry, whether it's on Sundays or Mondays or Tuesdays or whatever the setting happens to be. In practice, what we have done in large measure is we have created Protestant popes in our churches. And it's hard to know where to lay the blame for this. Maybe it's the leadership's fault for not allowing ministry to be carried out by others. Or maybe it's the congregation's fault for giving over all the responsibility of ministry to one or two or three people. In all likelihood, it's probably a little bit of both. But in any event, it's a situation that is totally contrary to the New Testament teaching of the one another's. By way of introduction this morning, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. After Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians chapter 4. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, beginning in verse 11, tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, He Himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effectual working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The key phrase in this passage is the first phrase in verse 12, the perfecting or equipping or maturing of the saints. God wants the saints, that is, believers, to be Equipped to be matured. And there is a reason why God wants believers to be perfected or matured. And that's found in the following phrase in verse 12. The phrase that says, for the work of ministry. God wants the saints, that is believers, his children, to do the work of ministry. You see, when Jesus Christ formed the church, his purpose was for the saints to do ministry. This is God's pattern for building up His church, edifying His church. Notice the last phrase in verse 12. It says, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. So the saints are supposed to be equipped. That raises a question. With what are they supposed to be equipped? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 answers that question because those verses specifically tell us the Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God has the ability for us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God can equip us to do what God wants us to do in our ministry to one another. Therefore, it is the responsibility of spiritual shepherds to teach the Word of God to God's people so God's people can be equipped to carry out ministry to one another. If this pattern is followed, notice what takes place. 
verse 13 says, We all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man that is mature, fully mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we're no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. And then especially notice verse 16, where we read, from whom the whole body, the whole body, not just a few, the whole body joined and knit together by what, watch this, every joint supplies, according to the effectual working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, every believer has a part in the ministry. Let me be more specific. You, if you're a Christian, you have a part in the ministry. Every believer has a part in building up the body of Christ. This is seen very clearly in all of the one another passages in the New Testament. And that's what I want us to look at in this message. Now obviously we can't look at all 60 some passages that contain the phrase one another. But if we categorize all of those passages, it seems that they fall into about 12 groups or 12 categories, thus the outline there on the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at each of these 12 just briefly, and we only need to look at them briefly because the hard part is not studying the one another's. Understand that. It's not the hard part. The hard part is practicing them. So hopefully we'll get a general understanding of the 12 concepts and then leave it up to each believer here to implement them in his or her life. In other words, we're, we're all going to have homework after church today. We all have things to do in response to what we hear from God's Word this morning. Now, before jumping into these 12 categories of one another, let me mention the overarching one another of the New Testament. And there's no doubt about this. The overarching one another in the New Testament is the command to love one another. Sixteen times in the New Testament, sixteen times we are commanded to love one another, and five of those are spoken by our Lord Himself. In John 13, in His Upper Room Discourse, listen to what Jesus said in some of His parting words. He said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this will all know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says that love for one another is the criterion, the measuring rod for proving that we belong to him, that we are his disciples. He didn't say knowing doctrine is the criterion. He didn't say involvement in service is the criterion. As important as those two elements are, he said it was love for one another that shows we belong to him. Our Lord was not the only one to place love on this high on the scale. Whenever Paul, the Apostle Paul, evaluated a church, the bottom line issue was always love. For example, after listing a number of commendable virtues, he told the Colossians in Colossians 3, over all of these virtues, over top of all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. The Apostle Peter felt the same way. He wrote this in 1 Peter 4. Above all, above all, love each other deeply. 
Because love covers a multitude of sins. So there is no question as to what is most important. Love is the goal. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul said the goal of our instruction is love. Why do we teach the Word of God? Whether it's in a large setting like this, small group Bible studies. Why do we teach the Word of God? Really, you can boil it down to this. The goal of our instruction is love. We teach people so they will love God more and love others more. That's the goal. That's it. That's why whenever Paul prayed for a church, love was almost always central. In fact, listen to his prayer to the, uh, on behalf of the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, he says this, And this I pray. Here's what I'm praying for you, Philippians. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So loving one another is the basic injunction of the New Testament. That's what we are commanded to do. The other categories of one another's are basically how to demonstrate love in action. What does it look like? It's, it's one thing to say, oh, I do love others in the body of Christ. But what does it look like practically? As we run through these 12 categories of one another's, we will see love fleshed out in a practical way. So with that in mind, here we go. Category number one, we are members of one another. Turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. After the book of Acts, after the four Gospels, we have Acts, then Romans. Look at chapter 12, verse 5. Paul says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and here we go, and individually members of one another. In Paul's letters to the churches at Rome, Corinth, Ephesus and Colossae, just those four churches, he uses the word body more than 30 times to describe our relationship to one another. We are in a body. We are in the body of Christ. This concept or truth that we are members of one another is not really an exhortation to action. This is, this is not an exhortation for us to do something but rather it is a plea to us to realize something. This, in a sense, is the foundation or basis for the other one another's. Because we are in the same body, that is, those of us who know Christ, those of us who are Christians, because we're in the same body, because we are members of one another, then we have a responsibility to each other. That leads to category two, be devoted to one another. Right here in Romans chapter 12, skip down to verse 10, where we read this, be kindly affectionate or be devoted to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Now your translation may read a little bit differently depending on what you have with you. The New King James says, be kindly affectionate to one another. The NASB translates it, be devoted to one another, as, the, as does the NIV. In the original language, the idea is, We should be devoted to each other with family affection. That's the command. So we should be devoted to each other with family affection. As a body, we are members of one another. We're connected. As a family, we are to be devoted to one another. Category number three. 
right here in Romans 12, honor one another. Verse 10, you maybe noticed it, be kindly affectionate to one another or be devoted to one another in brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. We are to honor one another. Jesus was the supreme example in honoring others above himself. You remember what he did in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet to their amazement. And then he said this after he had given them that example of selflessness and humility and honoring them. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. And what he was doing in that act of service was honoring his disciples above himself. It was the role of the slave, the household slave, to wash people's feet. And those who were in the household were honored by having their feet washed. Jesus honored his men by washing their feet. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves or more important than yourselves. Let me ask you a convicting question. How many situations right now can you recall where you purposely attempted to honor another believer above yourself? That can be an indicting question. Category number four, be of the same mind with one another. Look at Romans chapter 15, just a few pages over to the right. (coughs) Chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be of the same mind with one another. There is one thing we should learn from church history, and it is this. One of Satan's primary strategies is to destroy unity among Christians. If he can destroy unity, and he understands this, if he can destroy unity, he has destroyed one of the most powerful means of communication to lost men and women that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and was sent from the Father. That's what Jesus indicated in John 17 in his great high priestly prayer. That's why this is so important, that we be of the same mind with one another. As you read about the early church in the book of Acts, you see that the church at Jerusalem was of one mind. Acts 2.46 says, And day by day they continued with one mind in the temple. Acts 4.32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Earlier in this epistle to the Romans, Paul has already hit on this subject. Back up just a couple pages to chapter 12. Notice what he said in verse 16. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And then in chapter 14, he says very, basically the same thing. Chapter 14, verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. You see, being of the same mind doesn't just happen. I, I'm sure you know that. It doesn't just happen naturally. 
You don't take a group of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different uh, viewpoints, different perspectives, and then they're just all automatically of the same mind. It doesn't happen automatically. Every one of us must do our part in heeding verse 19 to be of the same mind with one another. Category number five, accept one another. Go back to Romans 15 and notice verse 7. Chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore receive one another or accept one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. This one follows naturally from the previous one on on, uh, being of the same mind because nothing shatters true unity among Christians more than extra-biblical rules and regulations that are used to judge a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. What I mean is, it is so easy for us to set up our standards of what we think a Christian ought to be. And if an individual doesn't match up, we write him off. There are at least two ways we violate this exhortation to accept one another or receive one another. Let me mention the two ways. Number one, legalism. That's judging one another with extra-biblical rules and regulations. And number two, prejudice. That is showing partiality toward one another. Both of those violate the exhortation to accept one another. Paul deals with the first one back one chapter, Romans 14. He says in verse 4, Who are you to judge another's servant? In other words, who do you think you are to judge another Christian? To his own master he stands or falls. So Paul rebukes us when we tend to lapse into legalism, judging one another based on our standards, our rules, our extra-biblical mandates. James deals with the second one, prejudice, when in chapter 2 he says, if you show favoritism, if you show partiality, you sin. We are not to judge one another. We are not to be partial with one another. We are to accept one another, receive one another. Category number six, admonish one another. Back to Romans chapter 15. Notice verse 14. Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. This Greek word admonish implies a definite correction or warning. We are to correct one another. We are to warn one another. Now I'm sure you understand and realize, even as I say that, that to do so, you're taking a big chance. You're taking a big chance concerning how is that going to be received. Beloved, there is no greater sign of love than to be willing to risk rejection and broken relationships with others. Now the question arises, how can a Christian carry out this injunction without judging? The previous one another was accept one another, receive one another, don't judge one another. And then we turn around and say admonish one another. So how do we do this so that we don't violate the previous one? The answer is found right here in this verse. Notice the two prerequisites that Paul mentions. First of all, number one, he says they were full of goodness. As Gene Getz says in his book, Building Up One Another... Quote, Christians 
who are sensitive about their own walk with God are capable and responsible to admonish other Christians. They have earned the right to warn those who display characteristics that violate the direct teaching of Scripture. It is one of the most difficult exhortations to obey, but it is necessary for the body of Christ to mature and grow. End quote. In other words, we must clean up our own act first. They were full of goodness. That is, there was a sensitivity in their own lives to sin. There was a teachableness. They were humble. They were open to correction themselves. They were open to warning themselves. That builds a platform in life from which to speak to others. If we show that we are teachable, we are humble, we are sensitive to sin, we are open to correction, that builds a platform to in turn admonish others. But there's a second prerequisite right here in the verse. Paul says they were filled with all knowledge. The second requirement for being able to admonish is an adequate knowledge of God's Word. Now, it doesn't mean you have to know everything, but we should make sure we know what the Bible teaches in a certain area before addressing it. You don't want to go to someone and warn them about something, and you're off base, biblically. You're completely out in left field. So those are the two requirements, full of goodness, filled with knowledge. The Scripture also outlines a proper process for carrying out admonishment. Number one, it should be done with love and concern. In Acts 20, 31, Paul said, For three years I never stopped admonishing each of you night and day with tears. Don't miss that. With tears. Admonishment should be done with love and concern. In fact, I would say this. If you look forward to admonishing people, you shouldn't do it. If you take delight in it, don't do it. Because you don't have love and concern. You're a spiritual headhunter. And there are enough spiritual headhunters in the body of Christ. Paul said he did it weeping. It's not something he wanted to do. It broke his heart to have to warn, to correct. It should be done with love and concern. Number two, admonishment must be done with pure motives. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul said, I am not writing this to shame you but to admonish you as my dear children. Admonishment must be done with pure motives. Paul says, I'm not trying to shame you. It should not be done to put people down, to put people in their place, to show people that you know more than they do, any of those motives that enter in. No, it's with pure motives not to shame, but as dear children to warn. And thirdly, admonishment must be done with a proper goal, and that is to help people become more mature in Jesus Christ. So admonishing someone is not something to be taken lightly. There's a right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. Furthermore, there are some basic qualifications. However, let me add this. If we're not qualified to admonish others, that doesn't exempt us. Don't say, well, you know, I just my own life isn't in order. Well, get it in order. It's that basic. We're to do whatever necessary to be qualified, to show a sensitivity to sin ourselves, a humbleness, a teachableness, etc., We are to admonish one another. Category number seven, greet one another. Look at Romans 16. Verse 16 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I bet you're interested in what I'm going to say about this one. Interestingly, five times in the New Testament we are exhorted to do this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. However, it is clear 
that the cultural form is not the issue. How can I say that? How do we know that? Because the Bible also talks about other types of greeting. And it talks about, for example, extending the right hand of fellowship. That's a direct quote out of Scripture. Extending the right hand of fellowship. Greeting one another with a holy kiss. So whether it's a kiss, a handshake, an embrace, or a bear hug is not the point. The cultural form is not the issue. But whatever form of greeting, here's the key, it is to demonstrate that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's no longer just a greeting or a routine gesture. It should be a greeting that reflects sincere Christian love and concern, not an empty token. It is not something that's just flippant in our lives. We are members of one another. We are in the same body, and our greeting of one another should reflect that. Category number eight, serve one another. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. After Romans is 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians chapter (coughs) 5. Beginning in verse 13, notice what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And then down in verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Serve one another. This is... So self-explanatory that very little needs to be said by way of explanation. Paul says here in these verses, Rather than doing things that tear others down, do things that build up others in the body of Christ. It's so neat to me the way the Lord does this. Notice that, that this is a general principle given to us by God. He doesn't lock us into any specific way we serve one another. That's up to us. He just says, do it. Make sure you are serving other people in some way. And the reason he doesn't give us the specifics is because it will look different for all of us. We each have different gifts, different opportunities, different personalities. But the point is this. We are naturally self-focused, self-centered. And the Lord is saying, get your eyes off yourself and serve other people. Just find a way to do it. Serve other people. Category number nine, bear one another's burdens. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here, We are exhorted to bear one another's burdens. And in the context, notice please, this has a specific reference to trying to help people overcome sin. Trying to help people who are caught in sin, who are trapped in sin. This is one of the most difficult tasks to do. And as a result, many Christians ignore this entirely. When they know other Christians are involved in sin, they just back away. Because they just, they don't know what to do. Beloved, we, we have a responsibility to do this when others sin. We are to attempt to restore them, bear their burdens, is, is what Paul says here. 
They are trapped. They are caught. He, he uses that terminology. They are overtaken in a trespass. Sin has deceived them and captured them. And we, we have to try to rescue them. But please notice the four guidelines Paul gives. Number one, restoration is a task for spiritual Christians, not carnal. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You can't restore someone trapped in sin if you're not dealing with sin in your own life. Again, you just disqualify yourself. You have no platform from which to speak. You go to someone attempting to rescue him or her, and they can easily say, well, look at your own life. Look at all these inconsistencies in your own life. So you who are spiritual, that is, make sure your own walk with God is what it ought to be. Secondly, a second guideline, restoration is often a task for more than one person. The you in this verse is plural. You who are spiritual. You plural. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 18. He said, if you know of someone who's caught in sin, you go and try to restore that person. But if he won't hear you, take someone else with you, one or two others, because that will maybe show the seriousness of the issue and show that others are concerned too, that that this is serious and that there is a, a high level of concern. So restoration is often a task for more than one person. Number three, restoration is to be done gently. Notice that. In a spirit of gentleness. Jesus compared this in Matthew 7 to removing something from someone's eye. Listen, if I have something in my eye, I'm not going to let you dig it out with a pocket knife. You've got to do it gently. It has to be done carefully, graciously. And number four, fourth guideline, restoration is to be done cautiously, Paul says here. Considering yourself, at the end of verse 1, lest you also be tempted, it's, you need to do this cautiously so as not to fall into the pit you are pulling someone else out of. This can happen very easily in two areas, so let me mention them. Two areas where this happens. Sexual temptation and bitterness. Sexual temptation. If you are trying to rescue someone from sexual sin and you are around that and you are hearing about that and you are exposed to that, it's very easy for you to allow your own guard to be lowered. Be very careful. And the second area where this easily happens is in the area of bitterness. If you're trying to rescue someone who is eaten up with bitterness, maybe they're bitter at God or they're, they're bitter at other people or they're bitter at the church or whatever it is, it's very easy to be infected with that. When you hear all of the bitterness spewing out of them, it's very easy for you to say, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, that is really terrible that that person did that. Oh, I can't believe the church did that to you. And it's very easy for you to be infect, infected with bitterness. So Paul, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says be very careful, but make sure you do it. We are to bear one another's burdens. This is our responsibility to one another. If you know of a brother or sister in sin, don't ignore it. And don't go telling someone else about it, gossiping about it. Attempt to restore him or her. Bear their burden. Try, at least give an honest effort in attempting to rescue that person. Category number 10. Bear with one another. Turn from Galatians to the next letter, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. This sounds very similar to the previous concept, 
bearing one another's burdens. But actually, it's altogether different. Let me explain. Bearing with one another or forbearing one another means to patiently put up with one another's idiosyncrasies in life and in personality and shortcomings in life. That's what it means. Put up with those things. This thought occurs again and again in the New Testament. Be patient with each other's weaknesses. I mean, beloved, let's, let's face it. All of us are weird. I mean, the more I get to know you, the more weird I see you are. And I'm sure you could say the same thing about me, right? We all have peculiarities in our personality, idiosyncrasies in our lives. Let's not be so critical of one another. Let's forbear one another. That's the idea. Forbear. By the way, let me add this disclaimer, though. This is not an excuse for refusing to deal with things in your life that offend other people or hurt other people. Don't use this to say, well, we're, you know, people should just forbear. They, they just need to, that's just me. That's my personality. No, that's not valid. If you have things in your life, personality traits, where you hurt other people and offend other people, you injure other people, don't excuse that and say, well, you know, we all have idiosyncrasies and that's just, those are mine. No, you deal with those issues. Category number 11, submit to one another. Look at Ephesians 5, next chapter, Ephesians 5, verse 21. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, or some translations, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are to submit to one another, not fight to have our way. One of the major elements in our nation, one of the major aspects of our nation is competition. And competition can be a good thing in a lot of ways, especially when it's carried out in a healthy way. But it can also be bad when a Christian adopts a competitive spirit to the exclusion of submission to others. Submitting to one another is difficult in our day and age when we are constantly told to stick up for our rights, demand our way, have it our way, etc., etc. God says, no, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because you fear or you respect, you are in awe of God. Submit to one another. He sees. He knows. And then finally, category number 12, encourage one another. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. After Ephesians is Philippians, then Colossians, then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. I'm reading out the New King James. It says, therefore, comfort each other. Paul says that at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But the word here in verse 11 of chapter 5 actually is encourage. Therefore, encourage each other. And edify or build up one another just as you are also doing. We are, in call, we are called to encourage one another. I'm not telling you anything when I say that life can be very discouraging. Circumstances can be very discouraging. People can be very discouraging. So make sure, beloved, that you are an encourager. Make it a goal in life, an aim in life to be an encourager to other people. That is this exhortation. 
The Apostle Paul had one important concern that was constantly on his mind, constantly in his heart, and that was to build up the body of Christ. You see this as you read the New Testament. He gave himself for the church to build up God's people. However, he knew he could only do so much. I mean, what can one man do? Only so much. So his strategy was to transfer this same concern, this same burden, this same mindset to others. And that is why he had so much to say about the one another's. Do you notice that all of these we looked at this morning were in Paul's letters? Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. That's why Paul had so much to say about the one another's. He wanted the people of God to catch this, to get it, to embrace it in their own lives, to see that they are ministers, to minister to others in the body of Christ. You know, I I honestly believe that one of the greatest needs in our church right now is for us to practice these one another's. Many of you have said to me from time to time, and I, I, I appreciate this so much, you've said to me, you know, Pastor, if I can do something, let me know. I, I want to I serve. I want to make a difference. If there's any way I can help, you know, the church seems so big. I'm not really sure what I can do. But if, I can, if there's anything I can do, just let me know. Well, if you've ever said that, or if you're thinking that, if you've ever thought, if you feel that way, then here's what you can do. Practice the one another's. See yourself as a minister. Someone who is called by God and equipped by God to minister to other people. Whatever you do, don't see yourself as a spectator. Someone who comes to church and watches the show and then goes home. You're not a spectator. Not in God's eyes. You're not a spectator. You're a minister. So minister the one another's. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing, one final thought to add. If you're here this morning and you have never received Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior, then you're not really a member of the body of Christ. Even if you happen to be a church member, you're not a member of the body of Christ. Because the only people who are really members of the body of Christ are those who have personally received Christ by faith. So if you have not, you need to do that. You need to repent of your sin, let go of whatever is holding you back. And right where you are seated, this very moment, you can receive Jesus Christ. In the quietness of your heart, you can pray and ask Him, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want you to forgive me of my sin. I want you to cleanse me. Give me your salvation. Make me the man or the woman you want me to be. If you've never done so, I urge you to receive Jesus Christ by faith. Then you'll be a member of the body of Christ, and then you'll be able to minister and carry out the one another's. Father, you are so gracious to us as your people to grant us the privilege, the opportunity to serve you by ministering to others. You could have chosen to do it a different way. You could have chosen to do it all yourself. Or you could have chosen to to give all the ministry to one or two people. But that's not your plan. We've seen that so clearly this morning. Your plan is for us to encourage one another. Pray for one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Serve one another. Whatever the case may be. May you raise us up to be a church filled 
with ministers, filled with people who minister in accordance with what your word says. And in closing, we want to pray for anyone who is here this morning who's not really a member of the body of Christ because he or she has never received Jesus Christ by faith. May your Holy Spirit do his convicting work so that this would be the day he or she would surrender to Jesus Christ by faith. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.